Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Thinking Theologically podcast, the show where we teach you how and why you should think theologically. I'm one of your hosts, Jack Dodgen, joined uh, by the master resident theologian in training, Spencer Shaw. Spencer, how are you doing? Doing good. Um, I'm going to emphasize what we do. We have every podcast for the past couple months. Uh, the end of the year, there's a lot going on. Uh, I'm ready for January 1st. Yeah. Yeah, though I, I don't feel like it. I don't feel like it ever really slows down. It's like uh, busy or more busy. Those are the two. Yeah, I miss busy. I miss just being yeah. busy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, there's also vacation, I guess. Busy, more busy, or vacation. Vacation. And hopefully you do nothing on vacation. That's the. That's I the goal. definitely do nothing. <laughs> um. We are following up our, our last episode with today. I mean, the the title of this episode is very like blatant. It breaks our combo of what we've done uh, for the last few. So it's uh, series adjacent. We talked about covering something like this in the last episode on how to interpret the Gospels. Uh, we want to deal with the synoptic problem today. Uh, we said in that at last episode, if you haven't listened to it, you should go check it out. We said in that last episode that if you were, uh, that, that we would provide examples specifically of the kind of stuff that we were talking about. That's what this episode is. So hopefully you have a Bible with you because we're going to look at several different texts and, uh, and I was going to say imagine, <laughs> uh, several different texts and observe. I don't know where imagine came from. Uh, observe how they're different uh, between one another and uh, why that is significant. Mm. Before we get into it, I want to encourage you, uh, as always, to check us out on thinkingtheologically.org. We had a, uh, I wrote I wrote a post. I haven't done that in a long time, like a year. <laughs> I wrote a post on uh, why does God get angry looking at the uh, looking at the Old Testament and God's anger there and uh, tracing a a thread through Exodus that kind of lays out a uh, the guiding principle for God's anger uh, that can be applied uh, throughout various places in the Old Testament. So check that out if you have... Uh, well, it took me 15 minutes to do the audio version, so I guess it's a 15-minute read. So if you yeah, have 15, 15 minutes, minutes. <laughs> if you have 15 minutes, go check out that article. I think it's, uh, I think it helps to <clears throat> not answer, but um, maybe make less challenging a uh, challenging topic for so many. So check out thinkingtheologically.org. We were just talking about some more articles and other things kind of here behind the scenes that we want to go up uh, in the future. Uh, and so we're making plans for more content there. Check that out. You can also follow us on Facebook or like us on Facebook, whatever it is, uh, at Thinking Theologically. We post the episodes and articles there, uh, and so you can follow us there to be notified of all that stuff. And of course, you can reach out to us on all the social media things and uh, give us comments, criticisms, whatever, or email us at strongchurchministries at gmail.com. Okay, episode 62, The Synoptic problem. Uh, we we led into this last week talking about the Gospels, synoptic meaning Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, the 
three Gospels that have a lot of similarities, as we discussed, sometimes with all three of them, sometimes just between two of them, and why those things are there. So today we're going to look at various texts and uh, examine. That's that's why I said imagine. We figured it out. Uh, examine uh, why those differences are there, provide some kind of explanation for those things, and just, uh, I think, through that process, like address some questions that people might have of why does this gospel uh, talk about those things in different ways and and all of that. Uh, so you laid this out, Spencer, in different kinds of changes uh, that we see, like changes to the text. Is that is that correct? Yes. Um, <clears throat> so a couple of things before we actually get into looking at some of these texts. So like you said, this is building off of some of the things we talked about in the last episode when yeah. we were talking about how to interpret the Gospels. And it, talking about it got just got me so excited that I was like, we've got to talk about it in the next episode. So I've been looking forward to this episode for a couple of weeks now. Nice. Uh, and of like always, there's a chance that as we talk about th- these things that we start talking about other things and this turns into more episodes. So who knows how long we'll be talking about the synoptic problem. There's plenty <laughs> of uh, material here. We've got three Gospels worth of material. Oh, yeah. Um, but a couple things I would really encourage you uh, before you listen to this episode to go listen to the previous episode where we get into detail more about how the synoptic problem works. But just a brief reminder, the synoptic problem is the synoptics are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as you said, because they're similar, and it's believed that they're using the same material. That's where the problem comes in of that there are stories that show up in all three Gospels that use pretty much the exact same language in the exact same order, the exact same tense. I mean, everything's the same. I mentioned if you were an English teacher, you'd know that there was some cheating. There was some copying that was going on. There's also uh, stories that don't show up in Mark, but only show up in Matthew and Luke, are two longer synoptic gospels that have the same problem. It seems like Matthew and Luke are copying off of something that Mark doesn't have or at least that Mark didn't use, but probably didn't have, otherwise he likely would have used it. And the general scholarly consensus on solving this problem are two things. Let's remember Mark in priority. That is, Mark was written first, and both Matthew and Luke copied from Mark in the composition of their Gospels. So the similar stories between all three are explained by, well, Mark wrote them first, and Matthew and Luke copied Mark, they might have also had additional versions of what Mark has, whether in oral or written tradition, that they incorporate, but they're working from Mark's gospel. And they might make changes or additions to Mark based on other traditions that they have access to. But they're working off of Mark, nevertheless. And the similarities between Matthew and Luke are explained by a document that has become known as Q, which is shorthand for the German word quell, which simply means source. And that is that both Matthew and Luke had access to a written source or maybe a series of written sources that were mostly sayings of Jesus. So not narratives or stories, but sayings. Jesus said, Jesus said, Jesus said. 
both Matthew and Luke had access to this Q source or these Q sources that they both used in the composition of their Gospels, which explains how we get stories in Matthew and Luke that agree word for word that aren't found in Mark. So the problem is, how do we explain the similarities? The solution is Mark and priority and Q. And in these examples that we're going to give, uh, we're going to highlight not only the way that the synoptic gospels rely on one another, but in particular, we want to highlight the practice of interpreting the gospels in light of the synoptic problem. Which So we're kind of ex- giving some examples of the principles that we talked about in the last episode of how do we take this and use it in actually interpreting the Gospels and looking for the differences and the changes that are made. So we talked about last week, you know, if Luke's copying from Mark, then when we read something in Luke, we understand it and interpret it in Luke, and then we go and compare it to Mark to see, well, how does Luke change Mark and why might he be doing so? Uh, So that's how the synoptic problem comes to play on how we actually interpret the Gospels. And so that's what these examples are that are divided into changes, different ways that the Gospel writers, using the same sources, change and alter those sources for the purposes of their Gospel, because each Gospel is trying to do something different. So giving examples of how that works, which are also examples of how to practice interpreting the Gospels in light of the synoptic problem this may be uh this may be hedging of me a bit or things like that um it was i think michael heiser in a video i saw recently because he he passed earlier this year um but in a a video that was posted uh, of his recently uh talked about the synoptic problem as a as a solution to these kinds of things and so maybe this is hedging uh, but e- even if you're coming to this and going, well, I'm not sure about the Q stuff and all these kinds of things, which honestly, I'm there too. I don't have a problem with it, but I'm not sure I'm all in on that, I guess is the way to say that. Uh, but even if even if like that's your mindset with all of this, uh, it, there still needs to be some kind of a, uh, some some sort of answer to, why are these things uh, different? Why why are the changes here? What are they trying to go through? Uh, and that answer, and we covered this very heavily uh, in the last episode. So again, you should listen to that one as sort of a foundation for this. Uh, that that answer shouldn't be well. Let's try to unify it all, uh, because that's going to rob us of the theological points that each of these separate gospel writers is, is trying to make here. Uh, so whether you uh, whether you ascribe to this the synoptic problem is this the like this is the solution Q and Mark Prior, all those things, uh, there's still uh, there are very much problems with the unified uh, is that what, unified voice is that the phrase I'm looking for? Uh, harmonizing of the gospels. That's mm-hmm. what I'm looking for. There's still a problem with that and so even if you're not fully on board with this one, you shouldn't be on fu- fully on board with that one. Uh, and it's important as we go through this to go, okay, 
I'm, I'm seeing the differences. I'm seeing that there are different points trying to be made. Uh, and then we're putting forward here an option to reconcile all of those things. Uh, if you have other thoughts about that, we'd love to hear it uh, in all the various uh, ways that you can, you can reach out to us. So uh, anyway, with that, I don't know, cowardly caveat out of the way, I have no idea. I just... Uh, I, th I think all that stuff is fair. Um, uh, but with that, with that all out of the way, let's start jumping into the text. The first one, I think we mentioned this last week, uh, the parable of the wicked tenants uh, and the historical change that takes place here with these things. Uh, Spencer, what do you mean by that? So I would also, I was just thinking about this. If you're listening to this episode and this is interesting to you, my encouragement would be, I think you'll get the most out of it by, as you're listening, to have the show notes opened and your Bible so you can see, because a lot of these stories, we're not going to be able to read the entire thing. I'm just going to, we're just going to have to reference some things. So um, knowing what those passages are and reading those is going to help uh, just expand your understanding and appreciation for some of the things that we're highlighting Yes. Um, but with that being said, the parable of the wicked tenants is one of the parables that shows up in all three synoptic gospels and the Coptic gospel of Thomas. So uh, it's one of the rare parables that shows up everywhere. Um, everywhere that we have parables in uh, extant um, gospel literature that dates early, so from the um, mid first century to the beginning of the second century, if that's where you date the gospel of Thomas, um, all of that, uh, we have the parable of the wicked tenants. Uh, it shows up in Mark chapter 12, verses one through 12, Matthew 21, 33 through 46, and Luke 20 verses nine through 19. And uh, the story broadly goes like this. Uh, there is a man who plants a vineyard and he leaves it in the control of some tenants and the man leaves and he sends some servants back to check on the vineyard. And there's groups of servants. Uh, the way those groups of servants look, why the man leaves, uh, those things are different depending on which account that you're reading from. But Nevertheless, in all the accounts, the man sends some servants back, and in all the accounts, the servants are mistreated. The description of their mistreatment does change, but they're all mistreated, they're beaten, they're, they're, they're killed. Um, and then finally, the man sends his son. And the son is killed and cast out of the vineyard. And... This is the, the meaning of the parable in all three is the same. It's the man who plants the vineyard is God. Uh, the vineyard and the tenants are representative of the people of Israel broadly. And uh, the vineyard is representative of Jerusalem more narrowly, which you think of Jerusalem and the temple is also representative of the entire nation of Israel. Um, so you can speak of Jerusalem and with that be referring to the people of Israel at large, right? So um, the servants that the man sends uh, are representative of the prophets, 
that God over time sends to the people of Israel, who they reject, some of which they kill. And the son that is finally sent is representative of Jesus, of course. God finally sends his son. And what do the Jewish people do to Jesus? Well, they're responsible for his death or his crucifixion. So that's the meaning of the parable in all three Gospels. But uh, here's where understanding Mark and priority comes into play. So if you read Mark's account, which is the first account, the earliest account, um, the son is killed and then he's thrown out of the vineyard. So uh, let me back up one second. There's a lot of changes that take place. We're going to highlight one here, which I think is the most sure. significant one. Uh, so in Mark, the earliest account, the son or who represents Jesus is killed and then he is thrown out of the vineyard. Um, when you go and read Matthew and Luke, in both of those accounts, uh, there's a change. In both Matthew and Luke, the son is first thrown out of the vineyard, and then he is killed. So in Mark, he's killed and then thrown out. In Matthew and Luke, he's thrown out and then he's killed. And the reason that Matthew and Luke changed this, and the reason I call this as a, his, a historical change, is because Matthew and Luke want us to see the vineyard as Jerusalem. Uh, and Jerusalem as representative of Israel at large. Um, and if you remember the story of Jesus, Jesus is not killed within the walls of Jerusalem. Jesus is crucified outside the gates of Jerusalem, which is uh, significant in the story of Jesus. It's significant theologically. The author of Hebrews uses it theologically there towards the end of the, the book of Hebrews. So it's significant that Jesus is killed outside the walls of Jerusalem. And so for Matthew and Luke, who want us to understand the vineyard as Jerusalem, uh, they change to having Jesus thrown out of the vineyard and then killed in the parable because it fits historically with what actually happened to Jesus, that Jesus was brought outside of the city of Jerusalem and then killed. So the point in all three, again, is the same. But Matthew and Luke make that slight change to enhance. What they're doing is they are enhancing the connection between the parable and Jesus. It's there in Mark, but by making that change, Matthew and Luke not only have the parable match a little better with historically what happened to Jesus, but it also enhances that connection with Jesus because Jesus, just like the son in the parable is kicked out of the city that represents the people of Israel. And then he is killed there outside, outside the vineyard, the city of Jerusalem. Mm. Um, and so again, uh, if you're comparing the gospels and trying to harmonize, you're going to have a problem unless Jesus told the parable twice. First off, right. Um, but secondly, uh, if 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 you're comparing the Gospels and you're not thinking of Mark in priority, you're gonna miss the way that Matthew and Luke change and enhance this connection. Um, again, at the end of the day, does it change a lot about how we interpret the parables? No. There's other changes that it might change a little bit about how we interpret the parable. Sure. Um, but. The point here being, this is just an example of some of the, the changes that might have been made, um, and it 
again, it, it heightens your awareness of what Matthew and Luke are trying to do um, that maybe Mark isn't as concerned about or uh, Mark is relying uh, more closely to the uh, tradition. Yeah. Um, uh, I'm, I'm wondering here, and this might be a, a side thing, could could the discussion of okay well he he told it twice does that work as an expl- as an explanation are there problems with that this is kind of <laughs> this is more connected to the synoptic problem than yeah. it is this actual text so uh well let, let's think about the if you just think about the parable of the wicked tenants yeah uh, when you start looking at the differences um and we might tag uh, I'll, there's a lot of things, uh, documents that we're probably going to tag with this one. Uh, <laughs> I wrote a paper on the wicked tenets in the synoptic tradition, and I lay out all the differences and why they're there. Um, and if that interests you and you go and look at all the differences, I just say that because the story, the basic storyline is the same. But there's so many little changes that change little meanings of the story between Matthew, Mark, and Luke that Jesus would have had to, if you explain it by Jesus telling it more than once, he would have had to have told it three times. And if you think that there's historical accuracy in the Gospel of Thomas, he would have had to tell it four times. Because there's no... It's... It's not as simple as, oh, they're telling different parts of it, but you can like fit it all together and maybe it was just longer or something like that. Sure. Um, it the, You can't harmonize the three unless he told it three times or Matthew and Luke are making some historical and theological changes to Mark's version of the story uh, to make different, to do something different with the exact same story. Um, and again, that fits with the way that we understand that ancient people did history like that. That might not be what you want out of, I've said this before, out of your history, uh, history book or th- a biography that you could go to Barnes and Noble and pick up. And that's, that's fair. Sure. We understand history a bit differently today, but that was the way you did history. Yeah. Um, in ancient times. And so not only does that fit, but it's also the simpler solution. So um, I'm assuming most people around here are not that familiar with philosophy, but in philosophy, there's a term, uh, there's a theory called, that's called Occam's razor, which Mm -hmm. states that the, the simplest solution that explains all of the evidence is the most likely to be correct. That is, there's no reason to, complicate things if they don't have to be complicated that in nature the simplest explanation that explains all of the available data is the one that's consistently the case nature doesn't unnecessarily complicate things generally speaking sure um and so if you apply that philosophical principle to the gospels the simplest explanation is that matthew and luke are making alterations to the story then trying to figure out how Jesus told the same parable three times in three different ways. Yeah, and even your even kind of the point here that we're getting at 
uh, that these these things are told a certain way to convey a certain point uh, between these Gospels. That still happens if you go, okay, he only said it once, and maybe it's longer, and we harm it, if, if you can do that, right? But then you still have the question of like, but why did they not just all write the same long thing? Well, maybe because they're trying to convey a certain point to an audience or whatever. So you still end up at that same <laughs> same explanation for, oh, it was longer, but they didn't write the whole. But if we we can harmonize it all together, yeah. But but why didn't they do that? Why why didn't they? Same same conclusion here. Uh, okay, yeah. I was just curious about that. I figured as much that you you can't even just say these two things are. Uh, you can't. He he can't just do it twice. It's going to have to be, at least three times. Yeah. And the, uh, the the parable of the wicked tenants to me is one of the best examples of that because okay. there there's no way to harmonize it. You're stuck with they either changed it or he told it multiple times. There's not a no matter how crazy an explanation you can come up with, it it's impossible to harmonize. Sure, sure. Okay, uh, nothing to add to the actual uh, the parable itself from me. Uh, just moving right on into the the next change here, which is a context change uh, of the subject of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Hey, what what do we mean by a context change? So this connects back to one of the specific things that we talked about in the last episode when you're interpreting okay. the Gospels. That when if you believe that Luke, for example, is using Mark then one of the things you have to look at is how does Luke change the context of the story that he's telling? If he's telling the same story as Mark, how might Luke put it in a different context to draw out different things from the story or to highlight different things in the story than Mark or to make the story mean something completely different than what Mark is trying to do? Um and that's something that you only realize if you understand Mark and priority or Q and see how, okay, they're using the same story, but they're putting it in different contexts to do different things with the story. So um, this is a side note. Mark is famous for using uh, sandwich stories. That is, he sandwiches one story in the middle of another story. Um. Right. And to get you to interpret the two in light of each other. So um, do you remember when Jesus is going, I think it's to heal Jairus's daughter and the woman with the bleeding problem and the crowd touches him. Yeah. In yeah. the middle of it. And then he goes to deal with the daughter. Right. Uh, saying which story. One story starts, you get the other story. And then the first story finishes. Um, it probably didn't happen in that order. Uh, Mark's probably taken two different stories and he's taken one and sandwiched it in the middle because he wants you to interpret the two stories in light of each other. Lesson um, and a lesson kind of thing. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so uh, that's an example of actually when Mark's doing that with the material that he has. And then Matthew and Luke do similar things with Mark. Um, okay. And here's an example. So uh, this is my favorite uh, example because it's so obvious. So uh, Jesus' discussion of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So uh, in Mark, it's in Mark 3, uh, 19b through verse 30. 
uh, and Jesus goes home. Uh, a crowd uh, comes and gathers around him. And uh, when Jesus' family hears this, they try to restrain Jesus because they say that Jesus has gone out of his mind. Uh, Jesus' family thinks that Jesus is crazy. This is the beginning of the gospel. So Jesus' ministry is just beginning, Mark chapter 3, and he's starting to teach and do miracles, and his family just thinks this boy is crazy. Um, And then some scribes show up, and they're like, well, he has... um, Bilzable, uh, and by the ruler of demons, Jesus casts out demons. So mm. uh, they say, "Well, Jesus is crazy," um, because uh, he has the the ruler of demons inside of him. And Jesus responds, and his response is first that a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. So if he casts out demons by the power of demons. That doesn't make any sense. That's a kingdom divided. And then Jesus says, every sin can be forgiven, but whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit cannot be forgiven, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And then verse 30 in Mark says, for uh, because this is uh, a explanation clause explaining, well, why... Uh, did Jesus say this? Or why is this true? Because, Mark says, they had said, referring to the scribes, he has an unclean spirit. So Mark connects Jesus' statement of blasphemy to the Holy Spirit to Jesus being accused of having an unclean spirit with that uh, connecting word for or because. Uh, So Mark says, uh, Jesus says this, Because he's been accused of having an unclean spirit. And so the point here seems to be that uh, Jesus is casting out demons, not by the power of an unclean spirit, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. And for the scribes to say, it's not the Holy Spirit, it's an unclean spirit, is for them to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Right, that that seems to be the connection that Mark is making, though Mark could be a little bit more direct about the connection that he's making. I'll give you that. It's still a little bit unclear and uncertain. But when we go to Matthew twenty-two, uh, I mean Matthew twelve, verses twenty-two, um, through where am I? Um, hold on. Matthew 12, 22 through 32. Um, We get Matthew's version of this, and uh, Matthew expands on Mark's account to make the same point, but Matthew is, in my opinion, a little bit more direct about it. So in Matthew's version, it begins with Jesus casting out a demon. Mark's version, his family accuses him of being crazy, and the scribes are like, well, he has an unclean spirit. Um, And that's how he casts out demons. But in Mark, there's no context of Jesus actually casting out demons. The story before that is Jesus calling his disciples. So it kind of comes out of nowhere in Mark. Okay. In Matthew, 
Jesus casts out a demon, and then not the scribes, but the Pharisees. Now, the scribes were probably Pharisaic scribes, maybe, but Matthew particularly wants to accuse the Pharisees. The Pharisees, after Jesus does this, says it's Bilzebul, the ruler of demons, that Jesus casts out demons. So the, the same accusation as in Mark, but the context is a little bit different. Uh, we actually get Jesus casting out a demon and then getting accused of doing this by the ruler of demons. And Jesus responds pretty much in the, the same way. Uh, first, Jesus says that a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. Doesn't make sense for Jesus to cast out demons by the ruler of demons. But then in verse 28, Jesus says, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come to you. So Matthew, unlike Mark, has Jesus very specific. I cast out demons not by an unclean spirit, but by the Spirit of God or by the Holy Spirit. Hmm. And then that leads Jesus to make the same statement about all sins can be forgiven except for blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which again seems to be in the context of Jesus is casting out demons by the Holy Spirit and being accused of using an unclean spirit, and that's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So, um, same thing. Matthew expands it a little bit, slightly different context, adds a few additional words of Jesus, which to me makes the story make a little bit more sense, a little bit more whole and complete uh, than Mark's version. So uh, I think Matthew is doing Mark a little bit of a of a service here in the way that he uh, tells it. Uh, okay. But then we get to Luke. Um, and this is where it gets interesting. Uh, in Luke 11... Luke has Jesus' statement about a house divided against itself cannot stand. Um, But he has no mention of uh, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And again, this comes in the context of Jesus is accused. Jesus casts out a demon, just like he does in Matthew. And then he's accused of doing it by Bilzebul, the ruler of demons, just like in Matthew. So again, you see how... Matthew and Luke are using Mark. They're expanding it, but they're expanding it the same way. That's where Q might come into play. Maybe they both have a version of the story that's longer than the version that Mark has because um, there's uh, agrees a little bit more. And so then, G- so Jesus accused uh, Bilzebul. Uh, the ruler of demons, that he casts out demons. And then Jesus responds, a house divided cannot stand. Um, And hold on one sec. So Luke's version, uh, Jesus continues and responds by saying that a house divided against itself cannot stand. And then Jesus says, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come to you. So you'll notice that's the same thing that Matthew says, but Matthew has Jesus say the spirit of God and Luke says the finger of God. Um, And I just say that to say Matthew uh, and Luke are using Mark, but they're expanding it in almost the same way. There's a slight change in language. 
but um, they seem again. It seems that's where Q would come into play. It seems that they're relying on a similar expansion of Mark's story. Uh, and again, perhaps Mark writes it and uh, oral tradition expands it by the time that uh, Matthew and Luke sit down to to write. Uh, that's just speculation, but that's one way to explain it. Here's the interesting thing. Jesus says all that, just like he does in Matthew, expansion of what he does in Mark. But in Luke, Jesus says nothing about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. That's where Luke is different. But you skip a chapter forward into chapter 12. And that's where we have Luke's version of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Sure. But in this case, it has to do with standing up for Jesus. So I, I want to read this to you because it's a little shorter. Uh, Luke 12, uh, I'm going to begin in verse 8. Uh, and I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But whoever denies me before others will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. When they bring you before the synagogues, the rulers, and the authorities, do not worry about how you are to defend yourselves or what you are to say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that very hour what you ought to say. Luke's context is completely different than Matthew and Mark. Where Matthew and Mark interpret blasphemy of the Holy Spirit as attributing Jesus' work by the power of the Spirit to the work of an unclean spirit, in Luke, it's connected with defending your faith, standing up for your faith. Jesus says, when you're brought before the authorities, don't worry about how to defend yourself. The Holy Spirit will tell you what what to say. And before that, Jesus says, if you acknowledge me before others, I will acknowledge you before God. So the point is, when you're brought before the authorities, uh, acknowledge me, stand up for your faith in me, and the Spirit will empower you to do that. And in the middle, we have this statement about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which seems to be connected to the idea of, if you don't do that, if you're brought before the authorities and you don't allow the Spirit to guide you. You speak against the Spirit. The Spirit gives you the, the words that you ought to say, but you don't use them. So you speak against the Spirit. That, in Luke's context, that's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, it seems. Not allowing the Spirit to guide you, not using the words of the Spirit, but speaking against the Spirit in those moments when you're brought before the authorities. So this is that's why this is a context example of Luke takes this phrase that's in Mark and possibly even in Q, depending on how you think of the similarities between Matthew and Luke's expansion of Mark. He takes this that's in Mark for sure, perhaps in Q, and puts it in a completely different context to make it mean something completely different than uh, Matthew and Mark want it to mean, which, again, comes back to probably something that you wouldn't fully catch if you're not thinking synoptic yeah. problem. Yeah. No, I think this one uh, highlights really well. Um, the, the, the This one gets particularly tricky, and I, you said this about the last one. 
<clears throat> though we didn't really see it as much in our exploration of it. But this one in particular, like you look at the context and go, yeah, how do I harmonize this? <laughs> like they're, they're very different. They're very similar phrases, completely different uh, contexts couched in different ways, trying to prove a different point. And this is in Matthew. So Matthew has the same story here in Luke 12, minus the mention of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So this about acknowledging before others and you'll be acknowledged before God and all of that uh, is Q material. Okay. Both Matthew and Luke have it. Luke just adds this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit to it. It's not in Mark. Mm. This isn't in Mark. Uh, It's just in Matthew and Luke. But Matthew doesn't have any mention of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. He leaves it. Matthew leaves blasphemy of the Holy Spirit in the same place that Mark has it. Luke takes it from that story and puts it in this other Q story. So that that it to me it gets even more interesting because of where yeah. Luke chooses to put it. Uh, Luke's doing something very different than Matthew and Mark because he's changing not only Mark but he's also changing Q uh, in ways that M- Mark and Matthew choose not to do. Um, which is interesting because that also gets into the interpretation of why does Luke want to put it here, which is beyond the scope of this podcast uh, episode. Um, maybe a future. Maybe sometime <laughs> down the line we'll delve more into that. But uh, uh, that it, again, with this story in particular, it, it opens up to me a good theological yeah. can of worms. Because there's a lot of crazy things going on and trying to figure out what, why is Luke doing this? Yeah. Yeah. Trying to get yeah. into the mind of Luke. Okay. Um, moving right along into the next change, uh, stylistic changes uh, as it concerns the Jesus's sweat drops of, of blood. What do we have to, to say there? So we're staying in Luke. Um, it, as our major example, not to be, not to surprise anyone who's listening to this and has listened to other episodes. I have a th- an affinity for it's the only one you've studied, the Gospel of Luke. <laughs> uh, I don't like any of the other ones, <clears throat> only Luke. Um, no, Matthew's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I don't. Uh, Mark, Mark's really cool. I think. Uh, I John's weird. Uh, I like the synoptics personally. Um, but that's because you get to do all this other fun stuff. So most of you are familiar. Luke chapter twenty-two. Uh, Jesus is in the Garden of uh, Gethsemane. He's on the Mount of Olives, and he is asking God. Uh, to remove this cup from him. Um, And then it says that uh, angels appeared from heaven to strengthen him. In anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. We're all familiar with the sweat drops of blood. 
right? Um, in your Bible, if you're using a modern translation, so probably anything other than King James and New King James. I'm sorry if that offends anyone. That's another. If you're episode. using a modern Great. translation, you probably have mine in the NRSV. For those two verses are bracketed, and then a footnote that says uh, ancient other ancient authorities do not contain verses 43 and 44. Hmm. Uh, so that some manuscripts do not contain this statement about Jesus sweat becoming like great drops of blood. Um, and again, another episode, <clears throat> if we want to go into the science of textual criticism and how you figure out what the original text said, um, it's very likely that these two verses were not original to the Gospel of Luke. And the reason is because of the stylistic changes that Luke makes in his passion narrative as compared to Mark. So when you read Mark's passion, Jesus is very human. Jesus is very much in anguish. He's very much struggling with the cross that is before him. And Jesus is very much not in control. Jesus is being controlled by others who are doing this to him. That's the way Mark presents it. And the culmination of this is as Jesus is on the cross in Mark 15, 34, he says the famous words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's kind of the climax yeah. of the suffering of Jesus. When you read Luke's passion narrative, it's very different. So in Mark's, Jesus also prays multiple times for, uh, you know, if there's another way. Right, uh, he's very yeah. much wants something else to happen. Uh, when you read Luke's, Jesus is very somber. In Luke, Jesus is in control, not the authorities. So Jesus isn't presented as in great anguish. Jesus doesn't pray multiple times. Jesus is very adamant, not my will, but yours be done. And the climax of this is when Jesus is on the cross in Luke, rather than saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As in Mark, Jesus says, Father, into your hands, I commend my spirit. Yeah. Right? Jesus is in control. It's um, so you could almost think of it as Jesus is a little more human in Mark and a little more God in Luke mm. in the way they tell their passion narratives. So uh, you get some stylistic changes uh, in the way that Mark and Luke tell this passion narrative. And I relate that to the drops of blood because uh, Jesus being in anguish and sweating drops of blood does not fit in Luke's presentation of Jesus which is another reason why mm. it's believed it was added later because it, it Luke I'm Luke wouldn't have said that because that's not the way he is stylistically presenting the passion narrative of Jesus. Um now side note what's interesting is I think there's a compelling argument that could be made that this was added early on by a scribe who was fighting against uh docetic teaching. Um which was the teaching that Jesus just appeared to be human, yeah. but wasn't really human. Um, so Jesus didn't really suffer. Um, and perhaps 
not that Luke was teaching this, but maybe the docetists of the time were using okay. Luke's gospel to uh, because Jesus is presented as not suffering and being in control. Perhaps they were using Luke to prove their point. And so a scribe at some point adds this little bit, which likely could have been a part of the oral tradition and maybe even happened. Like it, maybe it happened, maybe it didn't. Um, but a scribe adds that into Luke uh, to try to combat uh, the docetic usage of the passion narrative of Luke. Um, sure, yeah. It's a compelling argument to, to be made there. I, I, I believe that I think that's even the argument that Bart Ehrman Interesting makes, guy. who um, isn't uh, a believer any longer, but is an expert sure. in like textual criticism and early Christianity. And like, he might not be a believer, but um, if you're ever interested in the stuff that we're talking about, mm. you need to read Bart Ehrman. Um, he might be a little more critical than you're comfortable with, but... Uh, he knows what he's talking about, and he's a great conversation sure. partner in this kind of stuff. And a lot of the stuff that he does, I agree with. Um, I don't agree with some of his theological conclusions, but as a historian, he's he's pretty good. Um, and overall, in the way that he does history and relating to the Gospels, is actually fairly conservative in the way he does okay. the historical part of it. Um, anyway, that's... Uh, <laughs> Not important, but uh, the point being is that we can see Luke's yeah. stylistic yeah. change there. Uh, okay, I don't. I don't have much to add to these. We're just kind of. I mean, you're you're walking it through uh, this differences between the text uh, and why those things might be there. Uh, this next one. This next one, I might have some things to add. This is one I'm more familiar with personally. Um, the Beatitudes slash the Sermon on the Mount, as it's called in Matthew. Um, there's differences between Matthew and Luke in these things. Still hanging out in Luke, jumping into Matthew a little bit. Um, and we have these written as, specifically, you have Q source, as you've mentioned uh, in some other places here, but a, a theological change. Um, so I, th I think this will be a good uh, part of our discussion kind of as we make it towards the end of this episode here. Uh, what do you mean What do you mean by the uh, theological change here on the Beatitudes slash Sermon on the Mount? So Matthew has the, the famous, I'm sure we yes. all know it, uh, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. Luke has a similar teaching section. It's not near as long, though, as right. Matthew's uh, in Luke chapter 6. One of the differences is that Matthew's sermon is on a mountain, ergo Sermon on the Mount. In Luke, Jesus teaches in a plain or in a field or something like that. And so uh, a lot of the times in Luke, it's called the Sermon on the Plain. Um, similar teachings, like I said, Luke's isn't as long, but once he's in a he's on a mountain in Matthew and he's on a plain in Luke. Um, if if we're doing historical stuff, I would argue that the plain is probably original. Okay. Uh, that uh, Jesus 
doing this teaching on a plane is older. And Matthew has changed it from a plane to a mountain. And the reason I would argue that is because Jesus being on a mountain is very important for Matthew. Um, Jesus being in a plane is of no significance for Luke. In other words, Luke would have no reason to change Jesus from being a mountain to being on a plane. Matthew would have a reason to change Jesus being on a plane to being uh, being in a plane, yes. not flying in <laughs> yeah. the air, but, you know, in a field. Uh, uh, Matthew would have a reason of changing Jesus being in a field to being on top of a mountain um, because a mountain is significant in Matthew. So Matthew presents Jesus as the new Moses. So some of the unique things we have in, Ma- in Matthew is in the birth narrative, you have the, the kill- Herod's killing of babies and Jesus' parents fleeing to save Jesus into Egypt. And then Jesus comes back out of Egypt. That's unique to Matthew. And the reason is because Matthew is connecting Jesus to Moses. Remember, Moses was placed in the Nile River because the Pharaoh was killing babies. Uh, Moses grew up in Egypt and then comes out of Egypt. He leads the people out of Egypt. So Jesus goes through something similar uh, because Matthew wants us to see Jesus as the new Moses, a greater Moses, leading a new and greater exodus. Moses led an exodus out of Egypt. Jesus leads an exodus out of slavery to sin. That's the theological lens with which Matthew interprets the story of Jesus. So in Matthew, we also have five major teaching sections of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount being the first. The five major teaching sections of Jesus and Matthew correlate with the five books of the Torah. For the five books of the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Um, and so Jesus is a teacher, like Moses was a teacher. In uh, G- Jesus is the giver of a new law, like Moses was the giver of the old law. Uh, Jesus even reinterprets the law. So in uh, chapter 6, in particular, of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus has all the, you have heard that it was said, you have heard that it was said, you have heard that it was said. You, I mean, it's like six or seven times there, yeah. right? In Matthew chapter six, uh, that Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, and he quotes from the law, and then he reinterprets it, or expands upon it, or does something different with it. Uh, so Jesus is consistently in Matthew uh, presented right. as the new and greater Moses, Well, one of the ways that Matthew does this is with a mountain setting. So Moses is also known for going up Mount Sinai. So Moses was on top of a mountain, and it's on top of the mountain that Moses receives the law from God, and it's on top of the mountain that Moses comes face-to-face with God. And so a mountaintop is significant in the story of Moses, because that's where He encounters God and receives the law. And so when we get to Jesus, the new Moses, Jesus also goes up to a mountaintop. He goes up to a mountain to do the Sermon on the Mount and reinterpret the law. Moses went up the mountain to receive the law. Jesus goes up a mountain to reinterpret the law. Moses goes up a mountain and sees God face to face. 
Jesus goes up a mountain in Matthew 17 where he is transfigured and begins to to glow and look different, remind you of anyone? Doesn't that happen to Moses when he comes face to face with God, right? He comes off the mountain and his face is glowing and Jesus is declared to be the son of God. So you have kind of a similar thing going on there in Matthew 17. Again, Jesus is on top of a mountain. Uh, And then in Matthew 28, we have the Great Commission, which is also on top of a mountain. So the story closes with Jesus going back up a mountain and giving uh, the mission to the disciples to go out into all the world and preach the gospel to every nation, uh, which is also kind of reminiscent of the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 and the commission of Israel in Exodus 19. There's some language, all the nations, that fits there too. Um, Again, in Genesis 19, they're at the foot of the mountain, and God calls out from the mountain and commissions Israel. Jesus goes up the mountain and commissions his disciples which are representative of the 12 tribes of Israel, right? 12 disciples, 12 tribes of Israel. At that point, it's only 11, but that's beside the point. Um, It's still representative of Israel being commissioned once again from the top of a mountain. Um, So uh, Matthew is making this theological change of having Jesus on top of a mountain because of the way it fits with the theological lens that he's using to interpret Jesus as the new and greater Moses. The other thing, if you've ever read these two stories, you've noticed both of them contain Beatitudes. Luke's is shorter. Matthew's is longer. Luke's is noticeably different. Two things that people pick up on. Uh, Matthew says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Luke says, blessed are the poor. Matthew says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Uh, Luke just says, blessed are those who are hungry. Um, I've The way that I was taught this growing up is that Matthew's version is more spiritual. I don't think that's what's going on. I think they're both referring to the same group of people. I think Matthew's, you could call, is more the psychological state. So, blessed are the poor in spirit. Well, who are the poor in spirit? Well, that would include the poor. When you're poor, you're generally also poor in spirit. It would include other people. So, Matthew's might be a little bit larger. Yeah. But it would also include the poor. Uh. Luke says, blessed are the hungry. Matthew says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness or hunger and thirst for justice. But who desires justice? It's the people that are betreat, who are treated unjustly, which would include the poor, the hungry, uh, the slaves, uh, women. Uh, again, it's more encompassing, but it includes the hungry. So there's not as much of a difference, I don't see, between the two versions of the Beatitudes as a lot of people uh, might want you to think. And I don't know, it, it's it's interesting to me that it seems to be more conservative interpretations want them to be more different, sure. um, at least in, in my experience, which normally it's the other way around. Uh, and more I, liberal interpretations seem to s- pull them closer together um, from what I've seen, but that's beside the point. So, the point that I want to make with with that is that uh, Luke's, which may or may not be the earlier version, again, we can, uh, 
you could debate that, not the point of this episode. But Luke, what we do know is that Luke's version, just the poor and just the hungry, fit better with his theological emphasis and his gospel, which is to show Jesus' ministry to the outcast and the needy, how Jesus interacts with and associates with those at the bottom of society. So Luke isn't as focused on the psychological state of certain groups of people, but the specific group of people, like where they are in society, the struggle that they have, and how Jesus identifies with that, with the outcasts, with the needy, with the tax collectors and sinners. We talked about that when we were doing our stuff on the Lord's Supper, if you listen to those episodes. So Luke's, regardless of earlier or later and who's making the change, Luke's fits better with his theological emphasis, um, which it would probably suggest that maybe Luke made the change. Okay, sure. Um, maybe. Uh, you could also, I, sure. I can make a compelling argument the other way. Uh, but uh, that's another example of Matthew wants it to be a mountain. Because of his his theological emphasis, when we go to the teachings, Luke needs it to be the poor and the hungry because it fits his theological emphasis of the ministry yeah, of Jesus. Um, I, I mentioned this is one I'm more familiar with just personally uh, preached out of, of course, I preached out of Matthew on the Beatitudes. I, I think about the same time that you were preaching out of Luke <laughs> at your congregation. But um, we were, uh, I, I was looking at that and looking at Luke and going, okay, which one of the two do I really want to deal with and all those? And I settled with Matthew. It's the more popular one, you know, whatever. That's that's where I went. Um, but uh, I, I, I think the, the plain mountain thing is just one of those things that indicates the theology. I don't know which one came first. Yeah, again, not really the point of our thing. I do think the plane has theological significance, though, with uh, uh, for the same reason that focusing on the poor and things like that has theological significance. Um, John the Baptist in Luke's gospel talks about the the filling in the valleys and the lowering of the mountains and all that stuff. And plain is, it's a level playing field. Like uh, just from a geographic standpoint, whereas the mountain again, <clears throat> the the Moses thing. So I think they're I think they both kind of indicate some theological significance. But regardless of all of that. Uh, this the Sermon on the Mount, something that people are very familiar with, the the Beatitudes and all of that. I I always grew up not hearing what you did about the ones more spiritual or whatever. Uh, maybe I did, uh, perhaps. But um, w- what I generally heard was the harmonizing thing of well, they ultimately fit together. Like yeah, but they but they don't. It's it's extremely difficult to try to do that because what Matthew and Luke are doing, the way that they say things, makes it sound like Jesus did this twice completely differently. So don't try to harmonize it. But then why would he do it differently, or you know, re reuse his sermon or whatever? Um, it, it makes a lot more sense to show that. Okay, Luke cares about the all flesh here. Uh, Luke acts being seen together. He cares about uh, the gospel for 
the Jew and the Gentile, for men and women, for the the rich, the poor, the the servant, and not just the master, that this is a gospel for all. And that's very much what he's trying to accomplish, as you have noted, you know, a million times in our uh, Lord's Supper studies and things like that. Uh, and then Matthew, it's not that he doesn't care about those people, that Matthew's trying to set up Jesus as Moses, like you said. Um and so, yeah, that, that's exactly what we're talking about when we say the attempt to harmonize these things or to just kind of throw it off as, well, maybe Jesus did it twice, misses the theological point entirely. There's that, it's mm-hmm. so much cooler to think of Matthew in that way and go, how does this set up Jesus as Moses? It, it, a huge way leading all the way up to it and following it, you go, wow, that really opens Matthew up. It does. And if you look at Luke in the way that Spencer described here, really opens up Luke's gospel to go, this gospel is kind of cool. Like, this, this is awesome. I, how, how these words are being used to bring about this, uh, this overall theological point. Um, yeah, that's, that's really all I have to, to add there. It, it, I think it highlights the best uh, out of all the things we looked at, the 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 things that we get robbed of when we try to just make it all fit together instead of letting the voices speak and stand on their own. Anything to add to that, or do you want to? Our our last point's kind of weird, so I don't know if you want to add to this or just jump right into that one. Uh, I'll just jump. Okay, I'll just jump right yeah, into it. Yeah, this one will have an um, attachment, like we we so, mentioned. There's so many things attached to this episode. So this last point's kind of a yeah. If you want some more, here's some more. Uh, but it's the liturgical slash oral tradition concerning the Lord's Supper, of which we've done many episodes about, and I think covered part of what you're thinking here. Um, we've covered these things, but uh, I'll let you finish that out. Yeah, so the synoptic problem I mentioned, one of the ways you see it is you don't see it so much in the English. Like, you notice similarities in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You don't notice anything that appears quite like they're copying from each other in the English. It doesn't doesn't quite come across like that. Um, It does in the Greek. And the Lord's Supper is an example where in all of our accounts, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and even in 1 Corinthians 11, that the same language is used, like word for word, same words, same order, same tenses. And the overlap is what I've said this before, is what I would argue is liturgical language. So language that was used in worship, it's broke the bread, blessed it gave it to them. This is my body. Uh, Took the cup, gave it to them. This is my blood. Uh, So it's, it's those kinds that you would expect, you know, people to say in worship that tend, which suggests to me that this was something that very early developed in the oral tradition and worship practices of the church and then carries over when the gospel writers and when Paul sit down to write about it, they use the language that is used in the worship practices of the church. And so they all agree. Uh, it, it's more than just copying there, I believe. 
I think it is also because it was liturgical language. So um, I say that to say because I think the Lord's Supper is an example of in the Greek what we mean by there's a problem here. Uh, but it also gives us an example of sometimes where some of these things coming from are uh, pre-written formulas. Um, so I've mentioned before how you see some what seem to be pre-Paul formulas yeah. that Paul utilizes in his letters in particular. Uh, the Lord's Supper, I think, is where something even in the Gospels, we get some oral tradition that's carrying over into the Gospels. And there's uh, there so there, there's copying, I guess, going on here, okay. but in a different way. Um, but it also highlights the problem of where are they getting the same language from. Now, the Lord's Supper may be explained a little bit differently than Mark and Priority and Q. Uh and that's where, again, we talked about oral tradition last time. Um, so I'll say that because it's it. I can't really show you in the English exactly what I'm talking about. It's more apparent in the Greek. So what we're going to attach to this, if you're interested, it's it's a it's actually a photocopy of a book that I then digitally highlighted. Uh, I know there's a lot there, uh, but. What it is, is it's a photocopy of what is called a synopsis of the Gospels. A synopsis is where you get the same story. A true synopsis is in Greek. You get the same story in Greek side by side uh, so that you can do this language comparison. Oh, okay, like that. Right that's on. the purpose of it. So that's what it is. It's a synopsis. Uh, it's the Last Supper story. In all four Gospels laid out side by side in Greek. And what I did was I highlighted it. And so you've got one color that's used for something that only happens in Matthew. And another color for only Mark. Another mm -hmm. color for only Luke. Another color for Matthew and Luke. Another color for all three. Uh, I'll say that the gray or the black uh, is all three. And you'll be able to notice that. I mean, you just sure. look at the the, the colors, um, and it becomes pretty obvious. But that's what I want you to to notice and go through and just see how these same words and same phrases are used in all three, and they look and they look exactly the same. And that again, this is took bread, blessed it, broke it. This is saying this is my body. Uh, so it, it's those kinds of liturgical types of things. And though you won't be able to read what's actually being said, I think this will give you some appreciation of what we mean by the problem of uh, the synoptics um, and how much they do agree with one another sure. in word for word. Because, I don't know, almost everything in... Luke's version is longer, and so there's a lot of things that are sure. unique to Luke, but in the stuff in Matthew and Mark, almost all of it, almost all of it shows up in one of the other two Gospels, if not all three. Like, there's very little that is unique to Matthew and Luke. I mean, I, I mean Matthew and Mark. Uh, Luke's is longer, so there's a lot of, but Matthew and Mark, there's very little that's in Matthew or Mark 
that's not in one of the mm. three synoptic gospels. Uh, which just highlights the point of Luke's expanding, which is why we get some things unique to Luke. Sure. But again, a lot of similarities with uh, all three, and particularly with um, Mark. So, um, but that, that's just something yeah. that I think will help highlight the. Okay, well, uh, good highlighting there at the very end of why it's important to actually check out thinkingtheologically.org and the show notes and all those things, uh, because the the study abounds. Uh, there are a lot of a lot of different places you can go uh, with the topics we've discussed, the topics we've discussed in the past that form episodes like this that branch off from those things. That is ultimately what it means to think theologically, or at least the spirit of it, is to pursue pursue those questions and look into those things. Uh, we hope this episode ha- this episode has been helpful in uh, providing a a response uh, that isn't attempting to harmonize all the gospels, but to understand each of those things uh, as a as a unique uh, voice uh, in presenting material. Uh, to their audiences to a certain point uh, and why why it's so much better and so important uh, that we do those kinds of things. We would love to hear from you, strongchurchministries at gmail.com, uh, as well as Facebook. You can get a hold of either Spencer or I there, and then if you have any uh, criticisms, uh, as we've been specifically stating, uh Use that. Use social media for your uh, complaints and criticisms, and direct those towards uh, Spencer anywhere that you, anywhere that you are. We would love to see dancing TikTok videos uh, complaining about us. That would be great. Uh, I feel like that is the kind of bad press that is also good press <laughs> for us. Send us your TikToks, uh, your your Snapchats to Spencer complaining about his takes uh, and why Luke is not the best gospel. Uh, but John is, I guess. I, I don't know. I like John. I like John a lot. <laughs> His Greek is simpler. I think that's why I like John. <laughs> anyway, that's been the episode here today on the synoptic problem. We'll get back to interpreting here uh, in the new year. Or will we have, I don't know. Maybe we'll have one more. Maybe we'll have one more. Who knows? Uh, but we'll see you next time whenever that is. I'm Jack, and that's Spencer. 